You ever watch this guy on television? You all were not telling the truth, and you should not be trusted. Congressman Matt Gates, thank you for what you yeah. did for your country tonight. Be offended with the Democratic whip, not House Republicans. Like a machine, Matt Gates. Welcome to Hot Takes. I'm Congressman Matt Gates. Let's talk about the news. Here in Washington, D.C. today, the news is swirling about the potential deal on coronavirus legislation. Price tag at about $908 billion. Uh, a good chunk of that money, about $300 million, going to small businesses, uh, the Paycheck Protection Program, seeing some enhancements as a consequence. No stimulus uh, directly to Americans, but an additional $300 in unemployment benefits uh, provided in the bill. Also funding for frontline workers and hospitals. This has the features of a deal that could get done. Now, in the swamp of Washington, D.C., there are always extra ornaments that they hang on the tree. We want to make sure there's not funding for illegal immigration, that there's not uh, a way that the federal treasury is used as a backstop to poor decisions in states or cities that have nothing to do with coronavirus. Um, but I do believe that there's going to be a vote. Not sure how I would vote because I don't make those decisions until we see the final legislative text. But support for our frontline workers, additional assistance for our small businesses, uh, ensuring that we have a robust health care system, those all seem to be goals that the Trump administration is pursuing, and they are finding some bipartisan agreement. If I had to handicap it, I'd say we're back in Washington next week with a vote on major coronavirus legislation. We'll see if that's something that our office can support. Suitcases full of ballots counted in the absence of legally required oversight in the state of Georgia. Now, the legislative hearings there are uncovering what is very strange behavior in an election. And footage does appear to show these suitcases with ballots coming out from underneath a table after supervisors told poll workers to leave the room and then four people stayed behind to keep counting votes take a listen at about eight o'clock in the morning we're going to roll this back and show it to you there you go so now they're going to start pulling these ballots out from under this table this table the black one was placed there by the lady with the blonde braids at about 8:22 a.m in the morning so she put that table there so the same person who's staying behind now the same person who cleared the place out under the pretense that we're going to stop counting is the person who put the table there at 8.22 in the morning. Yeah, I saw four suitcases come out from underneath the table. So what are these ballots doing there, separate from all the other ballots? And why are they only counting them whenever the place is cleared out with no witnesses? Is the question. So these machines can process about 3,000 ballots an hour. You have multiple, multiple machines there. And they're there for two hours. So you do the math. How many ballots went through those machines in those two hours when there was no one there to supervise, to be present, consistent with your statutes and rules, to supervise the tabulation? We believe that could easily be, and probably is certainly, beyond the margin of victory in this race. Will Section 230 get repealed in the National Defense Authorization Act? And if it isn't, 
Will the National Defense Authorization Act be vetoed by President Trump as he's threatened? Now, Section 230, as we've covered in other podcasts, allows tech platforms to get to a size and scale with liability protections that gives them license to both produce content uh, and curate content in a way that disadvantages those that they don't agree with, whether that's from a market perspective or a political perspective or otherwise. So President Trump has said he'll veto the NDAA if a repeal of Section 230 is not included. And this isn't the first time that we've seen policy areas melded with the NDAA that might not have an immediate nexus to the military itself. In fact, it was the NDAA that was the legislative vehicle for paid family leave, which was a major priority of Ivanka Trump. And so uh, I'm here on Capitol Hill. I've had a few meetings on this uh, issue this morning. And what I can tell you is that the vote on whether or not to override a potential veto will be very different than the initial vote on the NDAA. The NDAA passed both the House and Senate with overwhelming bipartisan support. I didn't vote for it because I thought it put too many barriers in front of the Trump administration for troop withdrawals from Afghanistan. And if you can believe it, even Germany, (laughs) the Armed Services Committees in the House and Senate think that we uh, haven't progressed to the point to be able to draw down to 25,000 troops in Germany, for goodness sakes. I mean, World War II has been over uh, for a while. So President Trump, I think, seeing that the NDAA took a few positions that were adverse to his administration, has no problem threatening to veto that bill, uh, flexing some legislative muscle, wanting to see a repeal of Section 230. Now, the Senate Armed Services Chairman, Jim Imhoff, is a key player here. He recently indicated that he will not work in the conference committee to include the 230 repeal. President Trump tweeting at Imhoff that he was disappointed in that and that he may, in fact, veto the bill anyway. So I think that the vote on a veto override proposition before the House of Representatives in the Senate would go very different than the initial vote on the NDAA. And it's my hope that we use this opportunity to create online fairness. How people interact with online platforms is so central to how we live our lives. And we ought to have the ability to communicate freely. We ought to have a dynamic and creative and innovative marketplace of ideas online. And I'm glad that the president is fighting for the people of our country against these tech oligarchs. And it's interesting to see who in Congress is on the side of the president, who's on the side of the people, and who is just doing the bidding of their Silicon Valley donors. Should a private business be allowed to force their employees to wear gay pride shirts? That's the question being ripened in a lawsuit brought by a Christian woman against Starbucks. We get the story from lifesitenews.com. And in this particular circumstance, Starbucks had a pride shirt and the employee asked whether or not she would be required to wear that shirt, arguing that it would be tantamount to forced speech by the company since her Christian faith recognizes that marriage can only be between one man and one woman. Her manager told her that she wouldn't have to wear the t-shirt at work, but then she was informed by the district manager subsequently that she had been terminated. So in these types of employment cases, you get to all the different causalities, whether or not 
truly the reason this woman was fired was because she would not wear the gay pride shirt. Uh, and I don't believe that any company should be able to force their employees into any sort of political statement or religious statement. I think we all ought to be able to go to work and do our jobs. And you ought to be fired from your job for doing a bad job, not because someone thinks you have bad politics or bad religion. We'll follow the story and the litigation, and it may say a lot about the way in which corporate America is bending to the Woketopia and uh, the tools that they might or might not have at their disposal in their relationships with their employees. The MORE Act, cannabis reform, on the agenda up for a vote today in the House of Representatives. I go into great deal on the substance of this bill in episode 80 of the podcast, but I want to give you a flavor of the debate we had on the floor prior to the bill's passage today. Here's Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee describing the legislation. To summarize the provisions of the Moore Act, they fall into three categories. First, simply it would remove marijuana or cannabis from the list or the schedule of federally controlled substances. This means that going forward, individuals could no longer be prosecuted federally for marijuana offenses. This does not mean that marijuana would now be legal in the entire United States, as some have tried to argue. It would simply remove the federal government from interfering with state laws and state structures from the business of prosecuting marijuana cases and will leave the question of legality to the individual states. Those states choosing to decriminalize can do so without ongoing interference from the federal government. And those states that choose to continue to make marijuana illegal can continue to do so as well. Second, the bill would establish a taxation structure to collect a sales tax on marijuana, which over the course of five years could increase from five to eight percent. Finally, the bill would expunge and seal federal marijuana arrest and convictions and resentence offenders as appropriate. I also offered debate on this imperfect bill, but a bill that I think would help the country. Take a listen. The Moore Act is flawed. It uses cannabis policy to do a great deal of social engineering to create new taxes and new programs and redistribution of assets. But I am here as the only Republican co-sponsor of the Moore Act, and I'm voting for it. Because the federal government has lied to the people of this country about marijuana for a generation. We have seen a generation, particularly of black and brown youth, locked up for offenses that, not, that should have not resulted in any incarceration whatsoever. I'm also deeply troubled that the current policy of the federal government inhibits research into cannabis. Research that could unlock cures and help people live better lives. My Republican colleagues today will make a number of arguments against this bill, but those arguments are overwhelmingly losing with the American people. In every state where cannabis reform was on the ballot in this country, it passed. It passed with overwhelming support. Matter of fact, the only thing that I know that's more popular than getting out of the war on drugs is getting out of the war in Afghanistan. But if we were measuring the success in the war on drugs, it would be hard to conclude anything other than the fact that drugs have won because the American people do not support the policies of incarceration, limited research, limited choice, and particularly 
constraining medical application. We are here in a time where many people in our country are suffering. They are in pain. And it is documented that cannabis, that states with medical cannabis programs see a reduction in the prescribing of opioids and the number of opioid abuses and deaths. We've held hearings in the House Judiciary Committee where people in our government must confess that this is in fact true, that the more we give people access to medical cannabis programs, the more we see a, a blunting of this horrible scourge of opioid addiction and opioid abuse. We talk all the time on the right about the need to empower people and empower states. Right now, the federal policy on cannabis constrains our people. It limits our states. And I would only hope that in the 117th Congress, after this bill invariably dies in the Senate, that we'll actually come back and pass the States Act, because the States Act acknowledges that we have screwed this up in the federal government. And while we've screwed it up, states have taken action, they've designed programs in the way that our great federalist system promises. And if we were to pass the States Act, then best practices would emerge. States that developed uh, applicable programs for their people would be replicable, and we would see better policies. I'm going to vote for the Moore Act. It won't pass the Senate. It won't become law. But then we should come back in the 117th Congress, and we should truly do more for our people. I thank the gentleman I yield back. Of course, we get our share of weird stories that come out of the state of Florida, but it seems lately California has been more than pulling their weight. We get the story that in the San Diego school district, teachers are now being forced to attend white privilege training. They're told they're racist. They're told that there is uh, inherent racism in all of them and that this is now somehow an essential requirement of being able to provide instruction to young people. Americans are not inherently racist. We are good people. This is a loving country. We want our schools to be places where everyone is accepted and given the opportunity to advance themselves and contribute to a growing uh, skill library within their own lives. And so the notion that we've got to take time that could be spent giving teachers more digital instruction, a more assistance in the unique complexities of teaching in the era of COVID. Instead of doing all that, we have to sit down teachers and tell them they're racist and that their work is the subject of privilege. That's nonsense. It shouldn't be happening in San Diego, California or anywhere. We pick up the story from NBCWESH. Carol Baskin of Tiger King fame at Big Cat Rescue saw one of her volunteers have a very tragic encounter with one of the tigers. The volunteer apparently reached into the cage during the feeding time. The tiger grabbed that individual's arm. The injuries are serious, uh, but it appears as though they won't be life-threatening. Take a listen. We're following another developing story. This is happening in Tampa, where a volunteer has been seriously hurt at Big Cat Rescue. This is owned by Carol Baskin, who rose to fame after being featured in the Netflix hit Tiger King. That volunteer was reportedly feeding a tiger when the big cat grabbed the volunteer's arm, nearly tearing it off. It happened, authorities say, around 8.30 this morning. We're going to bring you more information as it becomes available. Big cats are dangerous. They're probably not meant for people's 
backyard or roadside zoos. And I think in many cases, these quote unquote rescues uh, are not necessarily acting in the best interest of the animals. They're acting in the best interests of the humans. Uh, so we need to ensure that if there is, in fact, a legitimate rescue mission, that it's treated as such. But gosh, if it's just like a roadside tiger zoo where people are getting their arms ripped off, maybe we need to have a more critical view of that activity. Would you ever eat chicken that wasn't really chicken, that was cultured or created in a lab? The people of Singapore may soon have the opportunity to do just that as a consequence of the company Eat Just, which uh, has developed a first-in-the-world regulatory approval for their chicken bites that are animal cells created in a lab. Now, this won't be a big fillet of chicken breast. It will start out in their nuggets. Uh, and Singapore appears to be first to give this option to their people. We'll see how many folks take advantage of it. I prefer my chicken to have had feathers at some point and been clucking and then to end up on a barbecue grill. The American people do not like it when their leaders tell them that they have to change their living activities and their lives as a result of coronavirus. But then those very same leaders go out and enjoy the full complements of life. Austin's mayor is sort of the latest to get tagged with this hypocrisy as a consequence of a video he made urging residents to stay home while the video was shot from Cabo. Take a listen to the mayor's message. Uh, the, the thrust of the most important messages trying to get out to the community right now is that our numbers are increasing and everybody has to be aware of that. And then we need to, you know, stay home if you can. Do everything you can to try to, to keep the numbers down. This is not the time to, to relax. We're going to be looking really closely. And it's just quite something that he delivered this from Mexico and thought that somehow he wasn't going to get busted for it. I don't begrudge people in office who want to get their hair done or have dinner or go on vacation. Matter of fact, I want to do all those things too. I just think it's troubling when they feel as though their reaction to the coronavirus must be some lockdown or edict that they clearly themselves don't believe, right? And, and what it does is it undermines people's confidence in any edict from government when the very leaders don't seem to treat it seriously themselves. And I think during COVID, we've really seen a dynamic where local leaders want to appear to be doing something. They, they want to appear to be empathetic to the pain and loss that people are enduring. And so they go and take these lockdown steps without really understanding the nexus to the science. And then when they don't understand the nexus to the science, they of course don't adhere to that themselves. And then other people don't as well. So uh, I believe that we ought to trust the people, not the politicians. And uh, the mayor of Austin has shown that that's probably the right way to go. Thanks for listening to Hot Takes. I'm Congressman Matt Gates. You can give us a big hand by offering a five-star rating on iTunes or your listening platform of choice. And write in the comments section if there are stories or questions you have about the inner workings of the United States Congress. We hope you subscribe and join us next week for more Hot Takes.